Good morning. It's great seeing everybody today. Um, at this time, if you are a kid up until fifth grade, you can head head down. Um, and also, I'm really excited uh, to get to get to introduce our speaker um, today. So, Adam is the executive director at the factory, uh, which is where I have the privilege to work uh, each day, and we get to serve the community and. Um, over the last year and a half of working at the factory, I've gotten to see Adam's heart and care and compassion for the community, and it encourages me on a regular basis. And so I'm excited today that he can bring that encouragement to you um, and our church family as we uh, try to live out a uh, Jesus-centered life throughout the rest of the week. So without any more to say, come on up, Adam. Thank you, Mike. For those of you who don't know, uh, Mike Lewis... Mike Lewis was my uh, kid's elementary school teacher, fifth and sixth grade, I think. One of them is, two of them you had twice. One of them you had twice. One you had twice. Yeah, so love Mike, uh, his heart for, again, it was, it was fun. Uh, my kids, one of, their, one of their favorite teachers. My name's Adam. As Mike said, I want to introduce myself quickly. I'll show you a quick picture up here on the slide. That is my family. I live, if you would walk out of church and walk that way, for about three minutes, uh, you will run into my home, actually. So I live right here in the community. Uh, that's my wife, Tanya. Uh, you'll see my oldest, Luke, and then Zach, and then Eden and Ava right there. Um, so we've been married 23 years. I've grown up kind of in a Christian context, uh, yet church wasn't always a thing that I enjoyed. Uh, at age 19, uh, through a lot of struggle, I actually uh, made an attempt on my life. I battled depression for a long time part of my life, still to this day, still battle depression. Um, so really have came to a place after that battle at age 19, where I've stepped into relationship with Jesus in a fresh and a new way outside of the kind of the, the, the rote understanding of rules and, and following that I, I didn't quite get my head, head around when I was growing up, really came to faith in Jesus Christ at age 19 and have not looked back since. And it's been a fun journey. I get to, I'm excited to come here today and share with you. I've been served as a senior pastor for uh, nine years in, in vocational ministry in church context for 16. And now, I, as Mike said, I'm at the factory ministry. So it is fun for me to come back and step into these roles where I get to preach and share and open up God's word. Uh, and I, I, man, this, this we're going today is, it was a struggle for me to study this out. And I'm excited uh, to really open up and share this. The Factory Ministries, this brief introduction to the Factory Ministries, I um, want to say thank you. Some of you uh, have um, contributed to our to the community and what we do in the factory. Uh, Grace family gave a gift this past winter coming into Christmas. Can I say thank you enough for that? Some of you have come over on your serve days that you do here in the community. Uh, came over this past year, and I think there's another one planned coming up. You might be joining us in there again. So thank you. We're a nonprofit a faith-based nonprofit that is really focused on the alleviation of generational poverty. Uh, and we do that as we define poverty as not so much as what's in a person's bank account, but what, what we really look at is how connected they are to resources. Like I would say if you have relational resources, for example, and you were to end up with an eviction notice today, there's a strong chance you will not be homeless simply because of the relational resources you have. So we look at re the connection to resources in six kind of key areas, and we work hard at empowering people. We're passionate about empowering people, um, connecting them to resources. Then as we do that, we build community because a lot of times poverty, there's community realities 
uh, and socioeconomic realities that, that must go much larger than just an individual's um, where they live, and so we really step in and work and build community. Very similar to CrossNet. CrossNet just two blocks that way. We love Meredith and Carl and the team there, partner with them, work with them. So again, if you know CrossNet, you kind of understand who we are. Um, where we're going to go this morning, uh, where, where uh, Corey and you guys have been throughout this summer, is I want to show a verse to you. Uh, it's the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 5. We're talking all about love, right? Love is important. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter 5, For the whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you're here this morning and you're familiar with the scriptures and you're familiar with Jesus' teaching, Jesus was kind of cornered one time and they, a religious leader says, Hey, Jesus, what is the most important command? For those of you that know that interaction, what did Jesus say? What do you say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second, he says, is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So it's so fascinating to me, the person who wrote where 1 Corinthians 13, where you've been spending the summer, says this. He says, well, actually, he skips love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He says, loving people sums up the entirety of the law. Why? Why does he say that? What I've learned in my journey is if you truly love God, you're going to find love for people to be naturally growing inside of you. More than that, I think of Jesus' closest friend on this earth, a guy by the name of John, in, in, in his writing to a letter that he wrote uh, in 1 John chapter 4. He says, listen, you can stand all day long on a stage like this and say, I love God. You can walk into your office tomorrow or step on to into your, wherever it is that you're heading tomorrow, you can step into that place and say, I love God. And John says, well, great, great. Now show me the love for the people in your life. Because it's easy to say, I love someone whom I've never seen when I don't love the people right in front of me who I can see. So this reality of love, it's a magnificent, powerful picture of if I live it out, it is contagious, it's beautiful, but it's ultimately living out the Christian faith. Now, where we're at up to this point, uh, you've been working through 1 Corinthians 13. This is where we're um, up to. It keeps no record of being wronged. Love keeps no record of being wronged. Now, as I stepped into this and studied this, I thought, well, this looks simple. This looks like on the screen, okay, it keeps no record of being wronged. Boom, I got it. I got it. I can do that. I understand what that means. But the more I processed it, I started thinking, well, you know what? This isn't as cut and dry as I think it may appear on the surface. As a senior pastor, I've had many opportunities to sit with individuals who were hurting, who were abused and neglected and abandoned in a lot of ways. And what I found is, what I what often found is um, poverty, as you think about it, this, this phrase of keeping no record of wrong, I'm sorry, this phrase of keeping no record of wrong, could you switch to the next slide there for me? The powerful and the fortunate preach this. Preach it hard. Love, forgiveness, grace. They preach it. But what does it really mean to live on the other end of it? And to be wronged. To be wronged in significant ways, in powerful ways. Ways that you feel that you have been traumatized and trapped and pushed down and there's no other choice for you to escape and no other safe place for you to find. What do you do in those situations? And what I found over years of ministry um, is oftentimes this message is proclaimed with strength and power. And then I find that perpetrators 
affirm it. For example, I think of a story of my wife and I. We had back, we've been married 23 years, about 24 years ago, is it during our dating relationship? Um, we stepped in towards a situation of abuse. We stepped in with a family member that we're like, you know what? There has been a consistent pattern of unhealthier that is damaging and hurting us. We need, to, we need to deal with this. So we took steps to deal with it. The response that we got was, love keeps no records of wrong. You need to forgive. Again, it's this position of statement, you need to do this. What I've found in, in years of ministry is often the person who's preaching that and saying that are often the individuals that have abused it. So my heart this morning is not to further entrench the hurt that you have from people that have done wrong to you. My heart this morning is actually for you to walk out of here free. What do I do with that hurt? How do I step into that hurt? How do I walk with that hurt? So the first reason I look at this, love keeps no record of wrong. Okay, that, that I've seen it abused. The second thing I saw is, let me show you this. Maybe you're familiar with this book. How many of you have ever read The Body Keeps a Score? Anyone read that? Some of you have read that. If you're familiar with trauma, if you've stepped into the trauma, um, anything trauma-informed, this is kind of a foundational work of Bessel van der Kolk. I, I will spend time up in Boston with him and learning from him. And um, that on the right, I'm not going to do it because I'm going to pull my pants up here this morning, but if I'm wearing shorts and I turned around, that they're my legs on the right. The reality is, what do you see there? What one is not like the other, Right. The reality is our human bodies keep the score. So number one, I've seen this principle abused and I wrestle with that. But number two, I realize God wired us to keep score. He made our bodies to keep score. I had a traumatic injury that was then misdiagnosed. It went untreated for three months until it was finally treated. It was almost too late. I almost was going to the place where I wasn't ever going to walk again. Praise God, I got to with a, a, a world-renowned surgeon. I had some connections, some other individuals down in Philadelphia, and he got me back and working again. So I can at least walk. <laughs> Never was real fast, but I'm even slower now. Never could jump. I can jump even <laughs> jump even less now. But the reality is our bodies keep the score. Maybe you have a scar on your body because something happened to you and it left the mark. Maybe you have been traumatized or abused or abandoned or neglected and it's left its mark internally and you trigger and you find yourself at times drawn out, out and, and you don't even understand it. Our bodies have been wired to keep the score. So when I think about this phrase, love keeps no record of wrong, what do I do with it? As I stepped into this journey further, I thought, well, you know what? Not only have I seen this principle abused, and I don't want to further entrench that this morning. Not only did I recognize our bodies are wise, but look at this verse from the writer of this, Love Keeps the Worker. Look at what he says in Galatians chapter 2. But when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face for what he did was what? This is funny. What he did was very wrong. This is Peter, one of the, the powerful super apostles. One of Jesus' inner three. The Apostle Paul in Galatians is writing to defend his ministry. Say, this is who I am. This is what I've been called to do. This is, this, is the, this is what I'm all about, preaching the gospel. And Peter, I had to stand up to him on that. Now, it's fascinating to me. This is written for us to still read thousands of years past this point. Roughly 2,000 years later, we're still reading this. That's a record of wrong. So when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, I keep no, love keeps no record of wrong. I'm like, well, no, wait a minute, Paul. You keep a record of wrong. Look at this next one. This was in um, uh, 1 Timothy. It says, cling to your faith in Christ 
and keep your conscience clear, for some people have deliberately violated their consciences. As a result, their faith has been shipwrecked. Then he names these two guys, our two examples. I threw them out and handed them over to Satan so they might learn not to blaspheme God. You read it you're like, whoa, Paul, settle down. Man. That's strong. But here Paul is again writing to a young man named Timothy, to a young pastor, and he's saying to him, there's been a wrong, and I'm keeping record. I'm writing it down to you, Timothy, and here we are 2,000 years later still reading about it. So that's the quandary I found myself in as I was preparing for this message. Love keeps no record of wrong. I've seen it abused. You probably have too. I recognize my human body keeps record of wrong. That's how God wired us and made us. And then I look at some of the biblical writers, the one, for instance, and there's other examples I could give you this, but the guy who wrote Love Keeps No Record of Wrong is himself keeping record of wrong. So what do we do with this? How do we, how do we process this and unpack it? I don't want to leave us this morning confused and send you home with nothing to, well, that was nice. He just caused me to doubt the scriptures all the more. Maybe you're a skeptic. What I really want to do is sink our teeth into this in a way that ignites our faith and gives us something to do tomorrow morning. Um, turn with me if you go to Romans chapter 12. If you have a Bible or find it there on your phone, um, scroll through maybe your app, Romans chapter 12. I'm going to have the first verse on the screen here, and then we're going to work through the rest of it um, in, in the text. But here's the Apostle Paul. Again, this guy who wrote 1 Corinthians 13, don't keep, no re- don't keep a record of wrong. Here's what he says. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Now, I think he says this. This has been an issue throughout all human history, but in America especially, I think we need to hear this. Do you know we smile more than any other nation? Statistically. Fascinating. We have a positivity culture in America that is, that is it's sometimes disheartening to me. But I think sometimes we do a lot of pretending whether it's the family photos, we're putting a smile on when we know I don't really care for this person and putting my arm around her. This person and putting my arm around her has really hurt me and, and wounded me. But here I am smiling. Or you come into these public settings and you shake hands on a Sunday morning, you ask how your week has been, and your week has been awful. And all that, you're not even sure you like this person you're shaking hands with, but we're Christians and we're getting together on a Sunday morning. I need to, I need to do, we, we do a lot in our world that is covering, which isn't all bad, isn't all wrong. I think that's why Apostle Paul steps in and says, don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Now, if you were to say that, if you were to tell someone to, I want you not to pretend, but I want you to really love someone. And then you're going to say, how do you do that? What would be the first word out of your mouth? The first phrase. Likely it's not going to be this phrase. Look at the very first thing he says. This is fascinating. This intrigues me. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. That's a strong strong statement. Love what is good. Hate what is wrong. So if you're going to genuinely, sincerely, from the bottom of your heart, love someone, not just pretend, not just put a mask on and step into it, but really love someone, Paul says you've got to hate what is wrong. The first time I had this come alive to me, this passage actually came off the pages for me. A number of years ago, I was stepping into a sabbatical. 
In preparation for that sabbatical, I reached out to a consultant who spent his time. He, he'd written on this. He's published on this. And he's put, his energy, what he's really good at, is helping individuals prepare for their sabbatical so that by the time they come out of it, it's really done what a sabbatical is designed to do. So I go see him in his office. We sit down in meeting one, and he talks through his, his approach and what we're going to do and what we're going to talk about. He asked me to go home and prepare a geneogram. If you're not familiar with the geneogram, a geneogram basically gives you a, a family tree, and you write back through three and four generations, because he looks at it from the Old Testament where it says, the sins of the fathers will revisit for three and four generations. So he says, go back three and four generations, and I want you to, with the best of your knowledge, and if you, if you need to reach out to other family members, do your best to reach out, but, but map back through your great-great-grandfather and what you know of him, what you know of your great-great-grandmother, what you know of them, and, and the things that they have done that have um, been strong, the things that were strong of them, and the things that they've done that would be wrong or not good, or the things that have hurt you as you get closer into the, to maybe your grandfather or your father. So I do this work. I go home. I call my mom. I call my dad because some of them I didn't know. And I'm like, okay, can you help me with this? And tell me about my great-grandfather. What do you know about them? So I'm feeling, learning all this family history. I bring it back in and I set it down in front of him. And he says, okay, Adam, now let's do the work of this. And he says, what oftentimes Christians have a tendency to do is the counsel that the pastor that married my parents will counsel to do. He came to him and sat down with him and said, and said, okay, Dave and Denise, my mom and dad. He said, listen, you're, the sins of the fathers will revisit. You're shaped by that at some capacity. So I'd encourage you to name the things that you don't want to continue. Drive a stake in the ground that you're not going to do this. But this consultant, as he's telling me this, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, my mom and dad did that. Did my mom and dad tell that story? My mom and dad say, that's why I got hugged on a regular basis and told every night I love you because my grandfather never said that to my dad. Which is all very good. And I'm glad my dad did that. This consultant, though, brings out the point. He says, listen, that's the law at work. Driving stakes in the ground, working hard at things, that's not grace. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he says, let's step into this geneogram through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says, I would like you to pray. We're going to go each level of this geneogram. We're going to pray. We're going to work through. And you're going to, you're going to talk to God. And you're going to literally seek forgiveness and grant forgiveness. I'm like, okay, that's cool. I can do that. So I pray. And as I'm praying, I never had this experience where there's someone in the room coaching me to pray. I've always, you know, <laughs> I thought about this later. We don't really teach people how to pray. Here's this guy literally coaching on the prayer. So he'd stop me. He'd go, okay, Adam, I noticed that you said this, and I really want you to focus on this. Okay, okay, okay. So I get down again. I start praying. So finally, he stops me altogether. So that stops me. Is that enough? He goes to his whiteboard, and he writes that phrase right there. He says, Adam, are you familiar with Romans chapter 12? Turn there with me. So he turns. He says, read this out loud to me. So I read Romans chapter 12, verse 9, and then he writes it up on the whiteboard. Hate what is wrong. He looks at me. I'm looking at him. Okay, I'm sitting here. He's there. All of a sudden, he smacks the whiteboard and says with venom and spit and everything flying up, hate what is wrong. I was startled. I sat back like, here's this calm, demure, gentle old man who's suddenly yelling at me. But he made his point. He said, Adam, do you hate sin? Do you hate what it's done to your family? Do you hate what it's done to you? Do you hate what it's done to the individuals who committed the act? Do you hate this? You need to hate it. I'm encouraging you to hate it. Pray like you hate it. And he went on and 
this passionate plea with me. I then sit back to pray. He goes, now, let's go to your grandfather. I said, okay, I can do this. So I sit down and I start, I get into this, okay, I hate what is wrong. I start to pray and the floodgates just broke free and I began to sob. The first time I ever really stepped into this principle of hate, what is wrong? My grandfather shaped me in some very profound ways that have left their mark. The first time ever I really stared it down and looked at it and said, this was wrong. A lot of times I'd come to my grandfather and I'd see he, he was in my home growing up. He lived with us until I was 18. A lot of times when I would come into his kind of a, his, his room where he lived, I would often plaster a smile on and I'd pretend. Now, as a, as, a, as a young boy, you don't really understand that that's what you're doing, but that's what I'm doing. Because I don't know how to name the pain that I'm having and experiencing in this relationship. But we find freedom when I can finally name and say, that is wrong. That is wrong. So when Paul says, let's keep no records of wrong, he's not saying to ignore and to pretend and shove stuff aside. He's actually encouraging us to step into it and hate it then hold tightly to what is good. Now, the rest of the passage, if you're there, I'm going to read it, just kind of breeze through it. I'd encourage you to go there this week, and this passage has so much in it. But I want to kind of work through it kind of quick and then land at the end and, and, and kind of give us some hope on how to step into this. It says, love each other with a genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, work hard, and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Don't keep a record of wrong. I think this, this fits in there well. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. That's what I did in that moment with that consultant. He said, I don't really want you to pray. I know your grandfather's passed, but I want you to pray a prayer of blessing. So after I named the wrong, I forgave the wrong, and he really helped me do that with the, with the blood of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. He said, now pray a blessing. That's a powerful thing to do. So don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. This is empathy. Empathy, when you have empathy towards another, you are alive to what's alive in them. So when someone sits with you and they're grieving, you feel the grief and you grieve. You step into that. You see it. You, you sense it. When they're excited and they're exuberant and they, they just won a competition or they just did something great at work and they're talking about it and you sense it and you feel it. So this is empathy. You're stepping in with your feeling what's alive in them. Live in harmony with each other. Don't, don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. Don't think you know it all. Never pay back evil with more evil. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live at peace with everyone. Dear friends, and here's, here's what I want to zero in on and wrap us up with. Dear friends, never take revenge. I think when Paul writes and says, don't keep a record of wrong, I think what he, what he, if, he, if he were here today and he would really interact with him, he'd say, oh, yeah, yeah, there's, there's a reality of you know wrong and you've kept a record of wrong, but let's not use it to take revenge. Let's not allow it to go dark in us. Leave that to the righteous anger of God, for the scripture says, I will take revenge, I will pay them back, says the Lord. So ultimately this comes down to, in my opinion, 
Do I trust God? Do I really trust God that he is who he says he is and he will do what he says he will do? Can I take him at his word? Do I really trust that one day all people will stand before him and give an account for their lives? Do I really believe that? Do I really trust that? Can I live that way today? Do I really understand that I have a lot I don't know about life and I'm really not a good judge? God says, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heat burning. It's always one of these pastors I just kind of laughed at. I'm like, burning coals in someone's head. That doesn't sound like a blessing at all. Like, what is that? Like, I, Anyway, I could go into why that's there, but you can Google that too and learn all kinds of stuff about that. That's a cool statement and what he's really getting at there. You do this, you'll heat burning coals of shame on their head. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. Conquer evil by doing good. We bring this home with this, don't take revenge. Love doesn't keep record of wrong. I think what it means, it doesn't mean you don't see unhealthy behaviors that need to be addressed. Maybe you're in an abusive relationship. Maybe it's subtle. Maybe you can't quite, there's something off, but you aren't quite sure what it is. Love not keeping a record around doesn't mean that you don't start to pay attention to those things. Maybe even get a journal and write them down so that you know you're not going crazy. That's, I don't think that's at all what Paul's saying. I think what he's saying is, let's not take revenge. Let's not let this go nasty on us. Let's not hold on to these things in a way that we're going to make that person pay. Because in the end, you know what happens. The person doesn't pay, you pay for it. I think of Jesus on the cross. He says this. Look at this slide here. When Jesus on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. This is a powerful statement as I think about this. First of all, when he says forgive them, the fact that he says forgive them, Jesus is naming they've done something wrong. But what's so interesting to me is this second line, they don't know what they are doing. You know, one of the things that's really hit me square in the face as I think about not keeping a record of wrong. When Jesus says, hey, don't take vengeance, don't judge, let that up to me. You know why it's important to let it up to Jesus? We, a lot of times, when we look at people, if we were hanging on a cross, and we're looking down at these individuals who just put us there, is this what you would pray? I know I wouldn't. I'm like, God, kill them all. I mean, Jesus was the perfect son of God, has committed no vile act. Perfect. He loved perfect. But he looks down and he says, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now, what ends up happening with us when we're hurt, when we're hurt, all we tend to see is our hurt. We don't know how to untangle the rest of it. Do we really know why a person does what they do? Why do you do what you do? Coming back to trauma, the body keeps a score. Bessel talks about this. He'll say, listen, science has shown over and over, if you've experienced childhood trauma, say someone you trusted actually ended up sexually abusing you. When you have children, you actually pass that trauma on to them through your DNA. Significant study and finding. 
Now we just start to unravel this reality of life. Why do any of us do what we do? We think we have it all figured out. But I would give offer this, I would just offer that I really don't have it figured out. Do I understand the generational stuff that that individual that's hurt me comes from? Do I understand what's been done to them? Do I understand maybe the choices that they made or the choices they didn't make? Do I understand the resources they had available to them or didn't have available to them? Do I understand even their their own chemical and and physiological makeup? Do I understand um, their diet? Do I understand, you go down all the things that shape life. Do I understand the culture they come from? When you look at our American culture, it's, it has this underlying level of positivity that we drive at and we value and success. So, so if I grew up in that culture versus growing up in my, my brother-in-law's culture, which would have been, he grew up in Singapore, very different culture. And that culture shapes how I look at life and how I choose to do the things I do. So oftentimes what I find is the people that I engage with, myself included, when I look at myself, I don't always understand me. We make terrible judges. I want to illustrate this this way. I'll put the, there's a picture of it. I don't know if this is going to work real well. I brought this along and I thought, you know, it worked at home in my garage when I was practicing this. And I got here and I'm like, I think it's going to work real well, but I'll do my best. But if you think about this this way, so this is my son's uh, work light. So if I would turn this on and blind myself, well, does it even turn on? Hold on. There it goes. It's on. So. The picture is there, but I have a can of Hunt's pasta sauce. If I tell you to describe this can to me, what shape is this? It's a cylinder, right? Now, setting it here, I'm not going to do it. It's not going to do it because of my hand. There you go. You can kind of see it. You see the image there. It's probably a little thing. What shape is on the ceiling? Take my hand out. It's a circle. If you turn it this way and let the light hit it, what shape will be in the ceiling? Rectangle. What happens with us, especially those who wronged us, we're looking at the wall. They've wronged us. They're a circle. Circles do evil things. Or are they really a circle? No, they're actually a cylinder. They're a rectangle. No, they're not a rectangle. It's a cylinder. We don't see things clearly like God sees them. The perspective shifts so much of this. So when God, when Jesus is hanging on the cross and he writes, says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He sees perfectly. We see what's projected. So I come back to Romans 12 and when he says, listen, guys, listen, listen, listen. Don't take vengeance into your own hands. Don't repay. Because we're not really good judges. As I land this thing and wrap it up, I think of um, Proverbs. Love prospers when a fault is forgiven, but dwelling on it separates close friends. And the next slide is, is the one that Colossians, just a powerful verse. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. If you were to go home and just read through the Gospels, or just take Matthew and Luke, and look at what Jesus says about forgiveness, there are some haunting words. 
Jesus will say things like, if you don't forgive, you're not forgiven. When I read that, I'm like, whoa. Because what I stake my eternal security on is God's grace and mercy and forgiveness. So when I'm not living it out here, but I think what Jesus is really going after is what Colossians captures. Do we really understand what we've been forgiven? Do you understand what you've been forgiven? When I think back to Romans 12, hate what is evil. Do you hate what is evil in you? Jesus tells multiple stories. Um, Jesus tells multiple stories, uh, Luke 7. And so I had it on a slide, but it looks like I got missed. Luke 7 and Matthew 18. Luke 7 and Matthew 18. I'm going to read them. He tells these powerful stories. The first one is the story of a woman who comes in and weeps at Jesus' feet and, and takes with her tears, gets his feet wet and wipes them and cleans them with, cleans his feet with her hair. I mean, it's just a gruesome picture. to think about it. It's like, look. Simon, the religious leader whose home Jesus is in, gets all upset and is like, whoa, this woman is a sinful woman, Jesus, and you're letting her touch you? Jesus turns around and turns it on Simon and says, Simon, you know, the custom would be that when I come into your home, you take care of me. You provide something for me to wash my feet. You've not done that. This woman from the time I've gotten here has not stopped wiping and washing my feet. And he tells this story of a banker who's forgiven a debt. And to the one individual, he forgives this massive debt. To the other individual, he forgives a little debt. And Jesus says, which, which individual loves the banker more? What's well, easy? Simon says, what's easy? The one who's been forgiven the greater debt. Jesus turns around and says, exactly. He who's been forgiven much, Simon, loves much. When I started with Galatians 5, love of God, when you really grasp what he has done for you, we hung him on the cross. And he stands there and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. My smallest sin is evil and ugly and separates me in a massive way. Second story, Matthew 18 tells us, again, I encourage you to read it this week. Matthew 18 tells this powerful story of this, this king who forgives a guy and forgives him a lifetime debt, like millions of dollars. This guy was never going to get it paid back. He pleads for mercy and the king gives him mercy. This same dude walks out of the, of the kind of, I picture like the kind of the town, the town hall, the, the, the magistrate's office. He walks out, he gets out of the town and finds a dude that owes him a day's worth of debt. And right away he goes over and he grabs him and shakes him and starts slowly, the passage says, squeezing his throat. The picture this, the disconnect. He was just forgiven a lifetime worth of debt. And now here he is greedy for, for his money. The king finds out, has him brought back in, and read it. This is, this is, this is haunting when I read this. Because Jesus is using this to say, hey, I'm drawing a parallel here of life. He brings him back in and says, throw him in prison and have him tortured. Love doesn't keep a record of wrong. When we hold on to those things, and we can't extend the same grace that's been given to us, it tortures us. It will gut us will leave us miserable 
and unproductive and, and ultimately to a place where it can, there's some individuals that I know that they just can't even function in life because it's gotten so deep and dark. So I end with this. If you're in this room this morning and you have been wronged and wronged significantly, I'm talking abuse, neglect, abandonment. We're talking wrong. Love not keeping a record of wrong. Actually, what it really means is you stepping into that and saying, this is evil and I hate it. Embracing that. Walking into that place. And then learning to hold that and begin to pray a prayer of blessing for that individual. Holding those two competing realities and walking into that place is a powerful, strong, healthy place to be. So I want to say, if you're here this morning and you have been wronged, hate it. I give you permission to hate it. If you're here this morning and you've wronged someone, what I've found is when I've used that phrase, you need to forgive me, I've found often I'm the perpetrator. If you're here this morning, you've wronged someone, go to them. Make it right. Hate what is evil in yourself. Hate what is evil. Pray a prayer of blessing for you. You might be your own worst enemy. I think when, the, when Paul says that, pray for those who pursue. You might be persecuting yourself. But for all of us, I say this. Understand the grace that God extends to you and the beauty and the joy that can be had when we receive it and live it out. Father, thank you so much for your grace and mercy. God, I pray for Grace Family. I pray for this church. Thank you for them and the work that they, have, um, they, they do here in this community. I'm a part of this community, and I love the influence that they have, and they love their neighbors. I love when I go for a walk and I see signs in people's yard that say they're a part of this church and see the impact that they have. How cool is that? As they step out and roll their sleeves up, as they're going to be coming again in August, and uh, this August, and rolling their sleeves and serving their community. God, thank you for that. God, I pray right now for people in this room that have been injured and wounded and hurt. Oh, God, I pray that they would, as they think about not keeping a record of wrong, God, would they be gracious towards themselves? God, you wired us. Our bodies absorb it. Our bodies keep that record. God, would you be gracious to them? Would they be gracious towards themselves? And God, would you shepherd them into this place of hating what is evil. Hating to the place where they'll even stand up to it and say, hey, this is wrong. But not being a person who holds vengeance, but a person who can pray blessing. I don't know where there are people found in that place, but God, I pray your grace and mercy in them. God, for those of us in this room that have hurt others, God, I put myself in that category. The people in my life that I've hurt and consistently hurt, that I've had to deal with and go back to and walk through and journey on. God, would I not be a person who demands grace back my way and demands forgiveness? Would I be a person that also hates what is evil and what I have done? Help us to be people that extend that grace and mercy and understanding that someone is hurt by when I've hurt them. God, I pray for all of us, God, that uh, if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know what it means to live in a relationship with you through, the, through your grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. I pray that they'd reach out to Corey or 
mic here on stage or others that are maybe here leading us in worship and just saying, what does that look like? What does that mean? God, for those of us that are walking in that relationship, I pray that we would lean into it. Lean into what it means to be forgiven. We've all been forgiven so much. Press that in our hearts and souls because we want to be a people that loves. And I think the only way to love is to understand what we've been forgiven. Thank you for that grace. Thank you for that mercy. In Jesus' name we pray.